Well, good evening, everyone. My name is Robin Archer, and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics. And I want to welcome you all today to our event on the case for the Green New Deal. And we've invited two speakers. Um, it's a bit invidious, but one to broadly look at a sort of policy-oriented approach uh, to the question, and one to look at it from a more activist-oriented approach. Of course, these things are going to meld into each other a bit, so they won't keep strictly separate. Let me introduce the two speakers. So first we're going to have David Powell. He's head of um, Environment and Green Transition at the New Economics Foundation, and he's also a campaigner, a blogger, and a podcaster. Yes, um, it is that. He has a degree from Edinburgh University, and I think in literature, I believe, and, and he also Didn't has... Didn't have to say that to be fair. Yeah, <laughs> literature is an admirable thing to do. And he also has um, postgraduate degrees in politics and the environment and in economics from Birkbeck College up the road. And I think it's right to say that you worked for about a decade for the Friends of the Earth before you worked for... Um, yeah for the New Economic yeah, Foundation. So he's, he's, he's been thinking about these questions that, you know, in a deep way for some time. Our second speaker is Noga levy -Rappapur. Um She's a climate activist and one of the key organisers of the UK Student Climate Network, um, which is mostly made up of people under 18, but I think there are. It's a bit like the Communist Party Youth League. You can be a bit older. Um, but it's, it's, it's very largely made up of people in high school, I think. And she helped to organise the UK versions of the global climate strikes that took place um, last year. And she's become a prominent spokesperson for this campaign, as some of you will know, and, and also played an active role in trying to influence Labor Party policy in, in this area. So each of our speakers is going to speak for, I think, about 20 minutes. Is that, is that about right? And then we're going to have lots of time for questions and discussion. So before they start, can I ask you to welcome our speakers, David Powell and Noga levy Hello. Uh, right, this was supposed to be straightforward. How do I get the presentation up on this screen? Who's in charge of this? <laughs> I've got a thing somewhere, but I have oh, to do... do you need assistance? Yeah. Um... Sorry, Maya. How do I do it? Thank you. There you go. Um, there's a clicker. Terrific. Thank you. Good. Can everyone hear me all right? Cool. Uh, so I'm Dave Powell. I'm from the New Economics Foundation. Uh, we're based in London, down the road. Um, I walked here. I got lost. My fault. Uh, I've been asked to talk about the Green New Deal. We're both going to talk about it. Um, we may overlap a little bit. So just tell me if I'm saying stuff that you plan to talk about. Just shout at me and I shall stop. What I'm mostly going to cover is some of the how we got to here, what the Green New Deal idea, why we need it, where it came from, um, where it's been for 10 years, why it's come back, what some of the stuff that's in it might be. Uh, the New Economics Foundation is a think tank. We do policy, economics, and movement building. We try and do all of these things for a green economy and for a fair economy, because we think that actually our economy is both dirty and unfair, and there's no point changing one if you don't change the other. Um, and we, we're committed, which is why we work so closely with Green New Deal UK and the Youth Strikers, we're committed to not just coming up with ideas, but actually being part of the movements that help make them happen, because no one ever reads a plan that just sits on a shelf. So, we'd like to talk about the Green New Deal. Um, 
What is it? I think it's two things, basically. It's an idea, it's a concept, it's a way of talking about what we need to see happen. And it's some actual stuff you might do to make that thing happen. So it's, a, it's an idea and a movement, and it's a plan at the same time. Um, and it's about doing the two things that the New Economics Foundation is here to do together. So it's about doing rapid decarbonisation and the recovery of nature and fixing our unequal, unfair economy. It's about trying to do those things at the same time. Um, and what I wanted to talk about just for a few minutes at the start before I talk about the Green New Deal, Green New Deal in particular is why that matters. Because I don't think you're going to get the kind of climate action that we all know we need to see if you're not doing both of those things together. You might think that social justice and stuff like that is important because you just think it's important. But you should also care about it, even if you don't, because you're not going to get climate action without it. So, uh, what was my first slide? Oh, there you are. Have I nicked? I haven't nicked anything. That's all right. So, I should have, I'm not good at slides. Um, that's the two things the Green New Deal is trying to do. Ambitious climate action, less inequality. So I wanted just to set the scene a little bit and say where we kind of came in with this idea and how you end up with the conclusion that something like a Green New Deal is what you need. And that's this concept of uh, just transition, broadly defined. And that's the idea of caring not just about what the economy looks like 10, 20 years from now, but caring about how you get there. Um, how you change an economy that is reliant on carbon, and is unfair, and is based on loads and loads of people work in high-carbon jobs, and there aren't yet loads and loads of low-carbon jobs, how you do that transition in a fair way. And the default way of doing it, the way that we've run our economy for the last 30 or 40 years, is just to kind of hope that we can create some new stuff, and that we'll do a little bit of fixing the impacts of that, and it'll be fine cares more about lines on graphs and how investment is going than what's actually happening to people and their place within it. It does things like closes down coal mines and doesn't really care what comes along for the communities that are left behind. And it ignores that people aren't lines on graphs, that actually public consent matters and the story that's being told matters. And it ignores that actually there's more things we need to do than just fix climate change. We need to fix the way our economy works for people. What is a just transition? Um, I'm not a colossal fan of the phrase... I think it's actually a bit problematic. The reason being, it's a bit wonky. It's the sort of thing that people wearing jackets and shirts that don't go together say. Um, and it, what it can be is a, a dangerous fig leaf for just a, a, a phrase you chuck out at things to make it look like you care about social justice when in fact you're not thinking about it. This is a quote from organiser Jane McAlevey. I think it's from 2012, might be 2013 now I look at it, but a while ago anyway, in the US context... Despite the amount of airtime given to green jobs, she said then, neither Labour or environmentalists have actually committed themselves to a green jobs agenda. And I definitely recognise this next paragraph, that environmentalists will say it'll create jobs, um, and Labour will say it'll be green. But what she was making the point is that the just transition can't be that sort of thing you add on to the end. It has to actually mean something. And I think this still happens now. You know, too often people will say, oh, this green economy will generate jobs. Well, it will, but who for? And how and where and in what? And who gets to do them? And what does that mean for people who don't have work at the moment? Are those jobs for them? 
And the whole point of the just transition is to do both of these things together, so to care about job creation and to care about rapid and serious decarbonisation and say, how do we bring them both together? It is a, a term that emerged, just transition emerged from the world of work. Um, 1970s, the nuclear industry in the States, uh, as nuclear disarmament was being talked about, the nuclear, in, the nuclear unions were concerned that it would put their members out of work, so they called for a just transition. That was kind of broadened to talk about polluting activities in the 1990s. Um, it's not some radical fringe idea because it's in the Paris Agreement on climate change. So the, that's the preamble, a bit of the preamble to the Paris Agreement, which says it is important to care about the workforce, to care about decent work and quality jobs in accordance with blah, 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 etc. Disclaimer. Um, now, I don't want to suggest that the only definition of just transition, of justice in the context of climate, is about work and the work that people do. Um, there are much broader lenses on that. Just in the sort of UK policy context, there's who pays for it as well as who works in it. What's the fairness there? Should bill payers pay? Should taxpayers pay? The UK has got a very high historical contribution to carbon emissions. There's a justice argument for us going further and faster than other countries because of that. You've got current generations versus future generations. You've got people versus animals, people versus habitats, ecosystems. So no way is there one definition of justice. But the reason I've talked about this will become clear in a sec. If we don't worry about this aspect of it, we haven't really understood what the challenge facing the UK is, particularly at this point in time. So in a democracy, this is the starting contention, you cannot force the kind of change that we need to see happen, the kind of really deep carbon cuts, the kind of radical climate ambition that the science is telling us that we need. You can't force that onto people. The UK has signed up to net zero carbon emissions by 2050. I think they're going to bring that date forward. I know that Nogra and colleagues are calling for that to come forward. We need to be very careful what's in the net part of that, because at the moment everyone who currently pollutes thinks all they have to do is plant some trees, which is a lot of trees, which is good, but, you know, there's not yet enough focus being given to reducing. But the sheer urgency of climate change means that irrespective of dates, we know that we have to do all the emissions cuts that we can and we have to do it quick. And, you know, frankly, we've got Donald Trump in the White House. Let's aim at 1.5 degrees. If we can't do 1.5 degrees, let's aim at 2. If we can't do that, let's do 2.5 degrees. But we were already at somewhere over, somewhere around 1 degree. So 1.5 degrees is what the Paris Agreement is ostensibly aimed at keeping temperatures at. We're already at about 1 degree. And this is what it looks like, you know? It looks like cherry blossom on the trees as I was walking up in January. It's floods and it's heat waves and it's death and it's chaos and it's fear. And, and fear and death and loss is politics. And that changes economics, it changes economies. If Scott Morrison was facing an election in Australia tomorrow, this stuff would have mattered. Now the government's official advisers on carbon reduction say they're still aiming at this 2050 net zero date. They say you've got to take a just transition approach. And the reason for that, I haven't got too many of these, and I couldn't fit it all on my slide. And I didn't realise till too late that I should have done widescreen, and then it would have been fine. But this is a graph that shows uh, we've kind of done the invisible, relatively easy bit of carbon reduction. I'm not, I want to insinuate at all that all of the hard work lots of people have done. So effectively what this is saying is, the big bar chart on the left is the electricity sector. This is what's borne the brunt of emissions reductions. We have got coal largely off the energy grid, certainly on the way to doing it in the UK. We have got loads of renewables going on. Um, this is great progress, 
Um, but 10 years ago, nothing really changed in kind of how most people interact with this stuff. 10 years ago, you put your telly into the wall, you press the button, electricity comes out. That's still what happens now. What the Committee on Climate Change, the government's advisors say is, right, well, look, good, you've done the easy stuff. All the rest of the stuff we have to do, which you could see if I hadn't chopped it off, um, requires changes to how we work, how we drive, what we eat, when we travel, how we heat our homes. All of these things that basically people will notice. And, it, and yeah, it refer, it'll change the jobs that we do and what communities look like. Um, this is what the Committee on Climate Change say at the very end of their big report advising the government on net zero. This is one of the most significant things in it, in my opinion. They say that you look at, this is to get to net zero, the kind of, the, the bits that are in the future, the bits that aren't happening already. They say that the majority of it has to involve some degree of societal or behavioural change. So all of the things that we might talk about, I can talk about a bit more about in a minute, but, you know, what you eat, how you travel, what your home looks like, what your job looks like, you're going to notice it. It's not all, it, technology plays a role, but it's all kind of involving, changing in some way people's lives. And that can really disrupt people, and that can be bad politics. We don't have the luxury of time, and we can't have... If what we're trying to do is, re is accelerate, even the carbon cuts that we've got, but if we're trying to accelerate those carbon cuts, we can't have a poll tax for the planet. We can't have a UK gilet jaune response. And my, one of my contentions is that although it's sometimes tempting to look at lines on graphs of emissions coming down, UK emissions are coming down, not quite as steeply as it looks because we outsource some stuff, but they are coming down. Investment in green energy is going up. You can look at that kind of graph and say, there we are, we're making progress. But ask yourself whether you think people are really ready for that kind of next step to think about their lives and their day-to-day -day behavior and what in practice the Sun and the Mail would do with that agenda. And I don't think we're quite, even though we've had an amazing 2019, an extraordinary 2019 for climate change, I don't think we're quite ready at the, sta we're quite yet at the stage of change really being something people are up for. That's a contention. The climate transition, to just look at the world of work for a second again, jobs in high carbon industry are concentrated in particular parts of the country. And... These are parts of the country, this is a slightly counterintuitive graph, but the bigger and the redder the blob is, the more in a given local authority area, the higher the concentration of jobs in what is in some way a carbon-intensive industry. So that also includes agriculture, includes manufacturing, includes transport. Um, the point being that some places are much more reliant on that sort of work than others proportionately. And these are places that... This graphic was put together before the election. These are places that increasingly now have voted Conservative. These are places where, relative to London, GVA has not been great, where deindustrialisation has been happening anyway. This is already the case. And as much as we may want to wish otherwise, we do have a hostile reactionary press, and anything that feels like a kind of attack on people's way of life, I think it's a luxury we can't afford. So social license, all of this has been about saying social license has got to be the mission of climate policy. It's never really talked about. People talk about, oh, we, we must uh, insulate loads of homes. We must turn all cars electric. People don't really ask, how are we going to make people want to do this stuff and think it's a really good news story and it's positive and it can do and it feels like the future and it doesn't feel like bad news for places where there's been enough bad news 
already. So this is the central challenge. And when people say, campaigners say, oh, we should aim for net zero by 2040, 2030, 2025, when people say that and you'll hear the stock response, which is, it's not possible, I don't think they mean it's not economically possible, and I don't think they mean it's not technically possible. I think they mean it's not kind of imaginable without people freaking out. I think that that's what they mean. It's a kind of, I don't see how we can do that in practice in a democracy when people might have to change. So three provocations that are sort of, that, that are my views, but I think they kind of <coughs> underpin some of the Green New Deal stuff. Firstly, all climate policy, I mean, in particular the stuff where you require people to in some way want to do this stuff, has to be actively thinking about building social license. It's got to be fair and it's got to be seen to be fair. Don't just let rich people get all the solar panels. Don't just insulate the homes of people that can afford to do it. Don't just tax everyone who flies exactly the same, even though a tiny minority of the population take a disproportionately large number of the flights. Think about your design of your policies. Secondly, understand that the reason we haven't had a just transition and we haven't had social justice at the heart of our economics for years isn't incidental. It's been a function of the way our economy works. The state has been retreating from a proactive role in industrial strategy for most of the last 40 years. It's latterly come back on as it's become clear that retreat is not an option. Certainly for most of the last 20 years, well, maybe up until the crash, finance, big money was more important than the coherence of places. And I think it's reflected in the state of our politics where there's a profound mistrust of elites. Places, like in the slide I just put up, um, but not you know, caricaturing anyone, but people have watched their communities change and nothing better has come along. Mining and shipbuilding has been replaced with Amazon call centers. Amazon call centers? Amazon factories and call centers. <coughs> and we need to pick the pace up. It's hard enough as, as it is. So the state has to have a leadership role. The state has been involved in the UK in climate policy, but it needs to have a much more central role in making it do that, changing some of the broader rules around it. And the third point, and this is what's so exciting about the Green New Deal, is, is talk like a human being about this stuff. No one gets out of bed and marches because they want to bring a line down on a graph. No one campaigns for a slightly better decarbonisation to energy ratio. That's, that's not what this is about. And that's what climate policy has been for most of the last 10 years, including by Muggins here. Like, that's what we've kind of done. We're not in that space anymore. Politics isn't in that space. And we've got to start talking about this stuff in terms of why it's a good idea for people and their lives and their future. Let's skip that bit out, because I think you're going to talk about that bit. Too often, environmentalist rhetoric. I've been guilty of this in the past. I try not to be anymore. If you're guilty of it, stop doing it. Fails to recognise that people do not get up in the morning and go and work for an oil company because they want to destroy the planet, because they are somehow gas-guzzling bastards. They don't get up in the morning and think, that's what I want to do. People who are from areas where fossil fuel jobs are so disproportionately important value the community, the identity, the heritage of those places. We need to understand that. We don't need to be dismissive and judgmental of it. Climate has to be umbilically connected to a better story about people's lives. So, the Green New Deal is about all of that stuff. It's about building that umbilical collection um, between environment and people's futures and politics and campaigning for something a bit better. Uh, how long ago is that? Crikey Moses. 2007, 2008, there was a financial crash coming hadn't quite broken at the point uh, that the bunch of people on the left 
all of whom significantly predate me in this space. I don't know if you can read that, but you've got, you know, Caroline Lucas, who was an MEP at that point. You've got the boss of Friends of the Earth. You've got uh, policy director at NEF, Larry Elliott from The Guardian, got together in this thing called the Green New Deal Group. And they said, there's a financial crash coming, and we need to do loads of green stuff. Is there a way to do a response to those things that feels like it's joined up? And they brought out a plan, so the New Economics Foundation published it, but we were just one of the organisations that convened it, which said, yeah, you know, we know we're going to need to stimulate the economy, so we should build loads of green infrastructure and insulate loads of homes. While we're at it, let's regulate the banks properly um, and also do stuff about tax evasion. And then there was lots of other stuff in there, some of which uh, survives in current plans and some of which doesn't. But the idea was basically seeded if we should do this stuff together. And it was a brilliant plan with the minor, tiny little problem that it was precisely opposite to the sort of stimulus that actually ended up happening and that was reached for. So uh, any sort of sense of a Keynesian stimulus was replaced very quickly with a let's just bail the banks out and get them lending again as soon as possible. Um, But it did make people think. It did make people think that good ideas don't happen just because they're good ideas. This was a plan, and it sat on a shelf, and indeed, in our office, 13 years on, 12 years on, we've still got this plan sitting on the shelf, still there, printed far too many copies of it. Um, And as Al Capone is supposed to have said, you can get much farther with a kind word and a gun than you can with just a kind word. Ideas alone do not shift politics. I'm not advocating using guns. Um, It's a particular irony, actually, that a few years later the Occupy movement came along and it was accused of being a movement without a plan. And, you know, looking back, we could maybe join those things up. So it all went quiet for a bit. Everyone got on with the job of um, dealing with the collapse of Woolworths and bailing the banks out. Um, And then it stopped going quiet. Because over on the other side of the pond, I'm probably missing out some important detail here of how this came to be, but the end of 20, it's about a year, just over a year ago, isn't it? Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez lent her name to a demand for a Green New Deal, which, by the way, is obviously an American, maybe not obviously, it's an American phrase. It originates, it's harking back to the New Deal of the 1930s, which was a stimulus measure to deal with a in, imperiled economy. Um, and picked it up. It had been championed by the Justice Democrats, by the Sunrise Movement, by diverse left young voices saying, we want this for our economy, please. Um, Its details were threshed out, original details were threshed out consensually. There was a Google Doc, which people just helped to write for what a committee that looked at the Green New Deal would do. And this this chart on the right is, I mean, it's pretty old now, but kind of overnight, the phrase Green New Deal, which people didn't know, uh, really took off. Um, I think it's now endorsed, is it every Democrat, every Democrat candidate's endorsed it? Something like that? Not all of them. A lot of them have, anyway. What's so brilliant about it was it's kind of everything Donald Trump isn't. Like it's, it's, harder to th- it's hard to think of a policy that is more, you see that Donald Trump, here's the opposite of that. It was championed by and was designed for young people of colour. It was about the state having a leading role. It's about climate change, for God's sake. It's about social justice, about job creation. And it's got three main planks to it, which was an ambition to decarbonise pretty much by 2030, to have the state at the heart of it with a jobs guarantee for people who might need to change job, and the just transition as the part of it. For the first time, and I've been at this for a while, the first time in a very, very long time, it felt like we could do it, it felt exciting, it felt like someone was going, well, yeah, the climate science is pretty bad, so here's a properly radical, exciting agenda to do something about it. So now the Green New Deal is over in the UK, I'm going to leave 
no good to talk about that. Um, other than I've used the same picture again, I think. No, different angle. Um, which has the same basic ideas underneath it, which is it is the government's job, actually, to do this stuff. It is the government's <coughs> job to lead on climate change. Private market's fine, but we need the government to be leading on it. We need to make sure we're looking after the transition and creating jobs for people and making sure that we're doing all we can to match people to work or help them find work in new industries. Um, and it's visionary and it's exciting. It's got five principles under it. Should I do these or do you want to talk about these? I'll put them up. Um, I just pretty much pasted them up apart from the third one's too long so I shortened it. Um, these are the five principles that the Green New Deal movement, which I was definitely going to talk about some more, has signed up to. Totally decarbonise the economy in a way that does social justice. That is right at the heart of it. That is the point of what it is there to do. Create jobs, make them good jobs, secure jobs, unionise jobs, particularly in communities where that's going to be acutely needed. Transform the economy. Don't just tinker around the edges of this. Make sure you've got a banking sector that's actually putting money into the right things if it needs to put money into this at all. Um, don't just stop at climate. One of the great frustrations of this agenda is people just saying, well, we just need to deal with climate change. It's fantastic that people are talking about it, but we need nature everywhere, not just to help with the climate challenge, but because we just do, because we need clean air and water, and this is part of what we, the challenge we're facing with the whole economy as well. And really importantly, this isn't just about what the UK gets up to. Promote global justice. The UK has been ahead of the curve on this in terms of emissions for a very long time. The Industrial Revolution started here. There's no way that we're going to do this by just going to other countries and continuing to nick their stuff. That's not going to work. We have a leadership role. We're hosting the climate talks at the end of this year. Our finance goes around the world. There's much more to the Green New Deal than just what we do here. Um, so what needs to come next is the plan. There isn't a Green New Deal plan. There isn't one of those. Um, for a lot of reasons. Firstly, because it's not rocket science, a lot of this stuff. So Neff brought out a report, I think this was last week? Yeah, last week, called Recession Ready, which is basically a new version of the original Green New Deal argument, which says, look, for all sorts of reasons, there might be a recession on the horizon at some point. What you want to be doing is getting on with this stuff now, because this is the sort of stuff that sustains work through a recession. And what I just pasted on there, this is a great long table I couldn't fit on if I wanted to, is just a list of the sort of things that we might need to do to meet net zero at any time. <coughs> you decide the time scale. We know how to do this. The technical side of this has never been a challenge. It's the political will and the economics um, that's been much more challenging because of the way that works. And we know it will cost money. And NEF has also brought out a bit of work that says, well, yeah, it'll, it'll cost money. I mean, so do a lot of things. But we can actually pay for this stuff, starting with the argument that says we should be paying for this stuff. There are all sorts of ways to fund the type of investment that we're looking at, of which you basically start by saying, this is what you use our taxes for, isn't it? We're talking about productive investment. We're talking about things that create jobs, that sort out the infrastructure of this country. Every home that we insulate helps is a bit of gas infrastructure we don't need to build. To actually get serious about that, have economic models that value those future benefits. So at the moment, everything is quantified as a cost, and we have a debate that this stuff is all a cost, but we don't think so seriously about the future tax revenues that will come in. If you're going to tax people, make sure it's not the poorest people that are paying for that. Take the idea of the frequent flyer levy, which I mentioned in passing earlier, which is the idea you'd reform air passenger duty so that every single time you took a flight, you'd pay proportionately more than the time before. 
stop subsidising fossil fuels, which we do in a lot of ways, direct and indirect, and it's not as simple as just take the money out of that and put it into green energy, because a lot of it is state guarantees and state loans and these things. But the European Commission says £10 billion a year in the UK goes to, in some way, economically supporting fossil fuels. So part of the picture is just take the money out of the unhelpful stuff. And transform the Bank of England. We have a bank that is supposed to be about directing money in the economy, providing financial stability. Give it an explicit job, which it does not have, to deliver a Green New Deal or something like it. So I think that's all I'll say by way of intro. Apart from... Oh, I don't want to be a downer onto your talk. Apart from kind of where we're at with this, electorally speaking... Um, Labour conference, I know you will talk about this, committed to a, what it called a socialist Green New Deal. Um, Scottish National Party, Green Party, Lib Dems to an extent all support it. There is a large campaign for a European Green New Deal and a, a sort of partial thing has been initiated by the Commission to do a European Green Deal, which is a big programme of green investment. Um, the one party that doesn't support it, which is the Conservatives... I don't know if this is a downer, actually, because I think in general there are two massive reasons to think that this idea is still live and kicking. Number one is that we host the climate talks at the end of this year and the demands for climate action are not going to stop. And the genie is absolutely out of the bottle. The movements are not going to go away. The demands are not going to change. Young people who, of course, overwhelmingly don't vote for the Conservatives, but they're not going to stop demanding action. And it's not just young people either. This is now a thing. Davos is happening right now, the World Economic Forum. Whether Donald Trump likes it or not, climate change is at the top of that agenda. I don't want to suggest that is it fixed, but what I'm saying is the debate has become something that you have to have at the heart of your policies. And for all that the Conservative Manifesto did not commit to a, quote, socialist Green New Deal, it was by far the most ambitious Conservative Manifesto on, the, on climate and the environment that I've seen, which is a sign of something. And the other point being that everything we've been talking about is cross-party. So the Conservatives have just won loads of seats that they either haven't won for a very long time or maybe haven't won at all in places where jobs are needed, in places where Brexit does not necessarily spell good news. I understand that they're calibrating a very large part of everything they're doing in policy terms to be able to go to those communities and say, here we are, we're delivering for you. Well, a significant chunk of what a Green New Deal is doing is about that. And so I don't really care whether you call it a Green New Deal or not. I'll be interested in Noga's views on whether the, you know, in the UK context, does the term mean anything? You can call it Susan, for all I care. I don't really mind. But the central argument still runs. Do you want to do something about climate change? You want to sort out the economy of the country. You do them together. And you do that in a way that builds the social license. So the Conservatives may not do a, quote, Green New Deal, but I think this basic approach, which is galvanise people and exciting them, is going to be the way that we do climate policy, because I just don't think there's any other way, <coughs> realistically, of doing it. So I'll bail out there, but thank you very much for listening. Great, thank you. Um, hi, I'm Nogale Rapport. I'm 18. I'm an organiser for the UK Student Climate Network and... Um, an organiser for Youth Strike for Climate, which is, has been the campaign we've hosted for the last around year and a half. We, I think it would be best to give more of an overview of kind of what we've been doing and how we got here, really. We started organising about a year ago for the first climate strike, of which the anniversary is in a couple of weeks, and we 
aim to get out onto the streets, I think, because of basic socio-political theory, of basic history, which relies on the ideas of if the people in power aren't doing what they need to be doing, you have to force them to change. You have to make the world, make the streets so ungovernable that they can do nothing but give in to your demands because it is so not worth it to continue ignoring you. And so we began striking every month uh, in anticipation of the largest the biggest, the only global climate strike there's ever been on such a mass scale which took place in September which 8 million people more or less around the world attended and in the UK that was the largest climate mobilisation there's ever been and I think to some extent and this is exactly what David's been saying that 2019 really was a year for change that suddenly there was this spike and that can be attested to many reasons I think perhaps because a few people in the media decided to change their approach perhaps because young people like Greta Thunberg and young people around the world were suddenly listened to and perhaps because something shifted. Something shifted in the way people started to view money and capital in the context of climate change. The way we began to view our entire system in the context not of profit but of people. And that's really what the Green New Deal is about. It's about recognising that the system we're in is one that is built off of centuries of an ideology that began with colonialism and imperialism, began with an ideology, a mindset of extractivism and resource extraction, <clears throat> began with an ideology that treated not just the planet and its resources, but people as commodities, as things to be objectified and used and made a profit out of at their own expense. And that is what has brought us so far to where we are to effectively into late-stage capitalism into a world in which the most common mindset is that of we have to make individual changes. We have to make changes to our own personal lives because there's nothing else we can do. And yet, at the same time, individual changes mean very little to nothing at all. And I think you did mention this earlier, David, in that that's what has said to be one of the biggest, the biggest ways we can change things, one of, one of the biggest ways that we can really <clears throat> make our world carbon-free or carbon-neutral, whichever is better for whoever's in power. And so... Suddenly, over the past year, there was a shift. Suddenly, over the past year, people, young people, particularly organisers, said, hang on, for the past 40 years, people have been talking about that differently. For the past 40 years, people have been saying, actually, it's not always about that. It's not always about individual changes. Because we know that that's not how the climate works. We know that climate change is the changing weather patterns, we know the extremes that it gets us to, we know and we see the floods and fires and droughts and we see the effect that that has on communities and on livelihoods and on people's lives and still we don't see any kind of real solution because the solution that we need is one that's so systemic that it has to dismantle 500 years of elevated power, a power so great that we continually are reaching for this perfect superlative of, of expanding wealth forever, of perpetual growth in our economy. And yet that's not brought anyone any particular success or happiness or safety or security, particularly not in this world where the lack of safety, the disillusionment, and suddenly one day your house comes burning down, that's the world we're living in. That's what's most prominent. And so with the Green New Deal, and again, David, you mentioned this, 10 years ago, people got together, incredible economists, incredible politicians, incredible thinkers and scientists and, and speakers and people who had ideas 
got together and created this Green New Deal because what we needed was a holistic solution. It was a solution that needed just, not just to dismantle our own mindsets, but to dismantle the entire structures which our economy is, and society is built on, to dismantle the entire structures, the oppressive structures that contributed to that same mindset 500 years ago that meant that we are always in search of using and using and gaining and gaining. But what the Green New Deal offers effectively is not just the end of gaining, but actual degrowth. The actual change, not just in mindset, but in how we view people in elevating their well-being and their security to its highest point, in saying that profit exists and capital can still exist in many forms, but actually people and planet are what exist here. They're not the structures of a financial system that's based primarily on empty promises and on swapping hands and exchanging of, <clears throat> of thoughts and ideas, but actually they're real. They're what needs to be protected. And so the Green New Deal came about in a way that really, again, was spearheaded by many across the diverse left in America and, and many here, but at its root, it came from those who were the most vulnerable, who across the global south have been fighting for far more than four decades, who from the very first day said, our sea levels are rising, yours aren't, but ours are and you don't really seem to care, even though all the resources you're taking are from us and you started that 500 years ago and you started to take and take and take until we were so poor and so vulnerable that we could no longer support ourselves when these floods came, when these droughts came, when these wildfires came and yet you still do nothing. And so I think, and David, you mentioned this earlier again, we talk about the Conservatives. We have to, they're in power. They don't particularly seem to be on the same client page as any of us. When we were organizing for the September strike, we asked the leader of every single party to come and show their support, not just for strikers, but for any kind of climate action. And everyone apart from Joe Swinson, then the leader of the Lib Dems and Boris Johnson responded. And so Jeremy Corbyn and Caroline Lucas arrived and spoke, and it was all very wonderful, and yet our Prime Minister did not appear. And I think the answer to that is very simple, because he and many others in his government profit from it. They profit from parts of their government, like UK Export Finance, that have spent £9.6 billion of taxpayer money on going through old colonial routes and avenues to places across the west of Africa where they can simply continue to take, and they will continue today to fund offshore coal, and whilst they may say they make climate commitments, climate change is so deeply rooted in inequality. That's how it came about. That's why it's a structural idea. That's why it's a systemic problem. <clears throat> that when a party's in power that fails to see those together, we can't have success from them. We, we can't have success from them on their terms because that isn't success, climate policy. That may be at its best a nationalist form of success. It may be at its best some job security for people living in England. It may be at its best some support for those affected from floods, and we saw them across Kent, across Yorkshire this year. It may be some support for, I think the latest number was several hundred people, elderly people who have been counted now to have died in the heat waves of this summer. There's very limited support for that as it is, and so we do have to take a step back and we do have to look through history and we have to 
It's weird to be taking inspiration from ourselves, but I know for me, we have to take inspiration from growing movements. We have to take inspiration from organizers, from political activists who say, there is only one way forward, and that is to force so much pressure on politicians that they can no longer afford to join a small climate change debate at which 20 are in attendance, but instead they are forced to look at bills in Parliament and they are forced to agree to them. Because without agreeing to them, there will be no one who picks up their litter and there will be no one who goes to their schools and there will be no one who does jobs for them and there will be no one who cleans their fancy homes and there will be no one who makes their lives worth it. And that's why we have to be in the streets every single day. And it's a historical thing. It's a social justice movement history that we see for centuries. We see struggles for civil rights, for equality around the world, and that is in no way separate to what we're facing now. When I mentioned nationalism earlier and the kind of limited success that many people can bring, the Conservatives in particular can bring to us, that's because it's so deep-rooted in ourselves, in this kind of extractivist selfishness. And so considering a solution to climate change, like the Green New Deal, or the Green New Deal itself, must be rooted in internationalism. Maybe that's dismantling all borders, if that's your style, and maybe that's recognizing that migrant justice and racial justice are both climate justice as one. They are the reversing and the bettering of structures that have existed for centuries, and they are taking back power, devolving power, from centralized governments and authorities and bringing those into local communities who can then take control of energy in areas, who can convert what used to be fossil fuel infrastructure into not just renewable infrastructure but a home and a security and a common area for those who need it. And that means recognizing, again, and you said this as well, the historic responsibility that we do have that we as the UK who brought out this great empire and who invaded and colonized so many places and who then refused to let refugees from those places come here, that we must stand at those climate talks in December and say, we fucked up a lot. And that means taking responsibility for it. And it means providing huge amounts of aid to countries that have suffered so terribly from climate change. It means stepping up and saying, actually, you can't have a prime minister or a president who's a climate denier. You can't have a prime minister or a president whose denial of climate change is so extreme that it verges onto denying existing social inequalities and failing to act on those. You simply can't. And we will do whatever we can. We will use whatever power we can as part of these UN climate talks to force other countries into action. And whilst, yes, there's never been much climate action, what there has been are these climate talks, and that in itself has been an incredible step. And the Paris Agreement can't be undermined. It has to be recognized that this was a phenomenal step forward, and that whilst staying under 1.5 degrees is a difficult ask and is one that we're unlikely to actually be successful with, that's a step. It's a margin. And it's one that we can narrow down even more. It's one that we can say, actually, we're not even going to get to that stage. We're going to stop right now and right here. And we're going to use the Green New Deal to do that. We're going to allow each country to form its own principles in accordance with what it needs to form 
the kind of demands and calls for help that it requires in the coming decades of climate devastation. And that flexibility allows the poorest and most vulnerable countries, again, to say, we need more help. We need more help because you fucked our country up by colonizing and by invading, and you brought this climate change upon us, and we have had so little to do with it, and we deserve reparations, and we deserve a better life and a better world, and one in which countries are able to treat each other equally under impending global crises. And I think that that stands not just for the most vulnerable countries, but for vulnerable people in the UK. As David said as well, people who work in fossil fuel industries, that's very rarely a choice. That's very rarely someone who desires to have such a great stake in fossil fuel companies. It's people who need to, who need a job and who need a livelihood. And so when we sat down about a year ago and wrote out the principles of the Green New Deal UK group, we said the most important thing is decarbonizing the UK, but it's doing so in a way that delivers social justice, justice, yes, but also bettering what already is, and it delivers good and safe and unionized jobs, not just, again, a label that's slapped on, but something that is at the very core of how we establish this. It's by getting the people who are most affected by this out onto the streets, whether that's young people, whether that's people working in fossil fuel industries, whether that's teachers who feel so trapped by an education system that has not allowed them to teach young people about the real roots of climate change and about social justice and what equality can mean and what it could be. Whether that's about young people who feel so disengaged from politics that this past year has been more than just one of action but an actual learning curve in which they've started to recognise, hang on, politics has never been separate from me. It is deeply personal. And so the Green New Deal also has to be deeply personal. It has to be systemic from the grassroots to the international. An old almost phrase that um, I once heard someone say was, if you try and get a jar and you fill it with five big rocks, there's still gaps in that jar. And so you fill it with smaller rocks and then you fill it with pebbles and then you fill it with gravel and eventually there's no stops. And that's what the Green New Deal has to look like. It has to look like something that is systemic, but recognizes the individual struggles and intersectional struggles that have brought climate change about that mean that there is such a desperate need for a systemic, transformative, and radical solution for the Green New Deal, that there is such a need for a solution that can fundamentally transform the economy, that can not just decarbonize but rewild areas of the UK, that can bring nature and people back together, that can recognize that our well-being is what is always most affected. Sometimes that comes in the form of capital and sometimes that comes in the form of homes and livelihoods and communities. But ultimately, this is about people. It's about people suffering and it's about people not just no longer suffering but succeeding in a better world. And I think there is, for me personally, and I think I have to speak in the personal here because I don't have many other credentials, there is nothing more important than that fairness, that equality, those reparations of someone who says people suffered, they shouldn't anymore. They should live happier and better lives. And that's our task for the next 10 years, to dismantle all those centuries of suffering and somehow to get us to a better world, to build on decades of thought and ideology and on policy 
and actually force it to be implemented. And it seems such a ridiculous task and it seems such an impossible task, but actually, when you look at what social justice movements in history have achieved, they all seemed impossible. And they all seemed terrifying and scary. And I think it is in many ways. I know that, that sometimes I see kids who are on strike with us and they look terrified out of their minds because what if we don't win? And then I'm reminded of something that I heard Caroline Lucas saying, which, which is, well, what, you know, either we don't do anything at all or we try and do what is scientifically necessary because actually there is no other option. The other option is a lack of empathy. It's a lack of compassion for people around the world and it's a lack of understanding and education that this is the desperate situation we're in, that this is a world of suffering and it is a world of pain and we see that everywhere and perhaps some of us are just waking up to it now because now the people who are suffering look more like us or live in places that we seem to approve of slightly more or perhaps we would let them immigrate here and we wouldn't let others but I think that ultimately everyone who wakes up to the climate crisis has a part to play whether you're the gravel or you're someone who can shape the boulder in that jar this is a decade of action, and that comes not just from the government, but it comes from us. It comes from us getting out onto those streets and doing everything we possibly can, because without us forcing change, we will never defeat the climate crisis. Thank you. Well, thank you both very much. Um, so we, we have got 30 minutes or so for questions and discussion. Um, I'll... I'll take people, um, I'll start by taking individuals, but we'll see how we go. Could you, if I call you, just say who you are and where you're from, because we have a podcast audience as well. So, uh, also wait for the microphone to come. So, the woman there with the glasses. Hi. Is it working? I'm supposed to know how this works. My name is Oriana Bandiera. I'm a professor of economics here at the LSE. That immediately makes me unpopular in the room. I... I just wanted to make a point which uh, there's always uh, uh, a trade-off presented between growth and climate, between growth and fairness. And this is depicted like the economist's point of view. Now, nothing could be farther from the truth. This trade-off only exists if markets were perfect. Markets are not perfect. It's the people who benefit from this imperfection that makes us believe that we have to choose between equity and efficiency, there's actually no such trade-off. I'll give you the references later. <laughs> okay. Um, that's, uh, right, I think we'll just take another comment, because that's basically a comment, which is a very interesting one, and you may want to come back to it. Um, just this woman here with the glasses in the second row. Uh, Alina Congreve, I'm a lecturer in housing and planning. Um, David, I'm interested in your very much glass half full take on our, our political situation in the Conservatives. If it doesn't work out quite as well as perhaps you hoped, mm -hmm. and the Conservatives don't take forward this agenda, what else can we do with the next four and a half years? Do we just, do we just write them off? Do we keep bashing our head against a brick wall? Or are there other things we can get on with in the meantime? I think it's interesting in the US, the way it's state level, city level, lots of things have happened. Here we have things like the transitions movement. So do we keep hitting our head against the government or should we do something else in the meantime? And what should that something else be if the Conservatives don't deliver as you hope? 
Okay, so why don't you take that? What is to be done? What is to be done? Yeah, <clears throat> I'm professionally required to be glass half full, but it's after hours, so <laughs> that's all right. Um, yeah, look, Logan's right that there is going to be a limit to the extent to which, certainly in the next five years, the Conservatives embrace anything that even smells like the agenda that Nova set out. I do think they will have to act on climate. I do think we should try and make that stuff as good as it is. We should be pushing the social justice case. We should be talking about that. But you hinted at what the bigger game is here, which is there's an awful lot of other people who have control over what happens, apart from the government. So local authorities being one. Something like so over 100 local authorities have declared a climate emergency now. We're working with one in Croydon who are doing a Croydon Climate Commission. My boss, Miata, is chairing it, so they're looking at what we can do locally. Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, whatever happens there. There are other places in the UK that we can be putting pressure for a start. There's businesses who we, you know, will respond increasingly, I think, to pressure to at first appear green and then maybe actually be green. There's movements and protests. And, and I wanted to talk about maybe a little bit how I can... This is what I was going to mention this anyway. Why I still retain some optimism in the face of all of this. Because it is possible to go, right, look, climate really bad, ask really big, what do we do about it? And it's to steal an observation my friend James Murray makes, which is there are two reasons to keep on trying as hard as you can, to aim as high as you can, which is number one, two degrees is better than three degrees, which is better than four degrees, which is better than five. So we may not achieve everything, but it's better to have a go. But secondly, and this has got to be a lesson of the last one year in climate politics, ten years in technology, change is not linear. Change never was linear, but change was never linear over quite a long period of time. We could see some really rapid changes. I mean, it's extraordinary how fast awareness around climate change has shifted. No one really knew who Greta was just over a year ago. She's now Time's Woman of the Year. There was no Green New Deal movement just over a year ago. Stuff can happen really, really fast. So I, I think it's a mistake to say, well, we've got five years of a particular government and nothing can change in that time. Actually, an awful lot can change. And you've also got the economic turmoil of whatever the next five years, one year brings to the economy. If there's a recession in a couple of years' time, I think all bets are off for this stuff. Because if there's a plan ready to go for what we do, then if there's a movement calling for it, we might be in a much better position than we were before. How's that? Okay, um, hold your thought if you have something about that. I'm just going to go over here, first of all. Um, the gentleman with the jacket. Hi, thank you. Uh, my name is Nick. I'm a student here at LC. Uh, my question is, is related to um, the injustice part that you spoke about. Um, it feels to me, being new to the UK, that a lot of the injustice narrative is, is sort of like um, clouded by uh, Brexit right now. Um, painting like the EU as, as you know, the, the, the bad person in the room. Um, how do you make sure that um, you take power of the injustice narrative, that it becomes more about climate and not about other external factors, um, and you get the people that are currently voting for Conservative on board because they're the ones affected? Um, so, yeah, that'll be my question. I mean, I think firstly we have to understand that actually it's not just about climate in that in many ways votes for things like Brexit are another symptom 
of what brought climate change about. These aren't separate issues. These aren't whole other societies that are fixating on different things. These are, again, the same problem. And it's that problem, you know, you said, injustice. And it's that problem of people being so disenfranchised that they are offered a solution and people want it. And when we talk about Brexit and climate change, we have to consider what kind of EU climate policy there already is. We consider if we can legislate better and cooperate better with countries whilst remaining in the EU. We have to consider the kind of impact that Brexit will have on climate change. We can't have separate conversations because people don't live separate lives. They don't live lives in which Brexit is the only thing that will ever matter just purely for the sake of Brexit. They live lives that are impacted by everything. Maybe that's why they voted for Brexit, it's why they voted to remain. And you, can ha you find Brexiteers who care about climate change, you find Remainers who don't, you find Remainers who do and Brexiteers who don't. Because when you have these kind of conversations, and this is why I said earlier, you have to go back to the very root of it all. You have to recognise that fundamentally the system we're in is benefiting only those at the top, those who control the markets, as Oriana said, and who control many aspects of our lives. And so when you're saying that we want to talk about climate, we don't want to talk about Brexit, actually we need to talk about everything. And I think that is what the Green New Deal is offering, in that we, can, we have now the opportunity to not just talk about everything, but to solve everything all at once. Okay. Uh, yeah, this person here, wait for the microphone. <clears throat> yeah, uh, <clears throat> Hi, thanks a lot for, um, uh, for um, the speech. Uh, um, I work for um, a strategy consulting firm and um, I had a question regarding, actually two questions. The first one is, uh, it seems to me uh, from, on the one hand, the, let's say the, the fact that the international system is becoming less and less effective to what it used to be some decades ago and to different political stages um, in Europe, in the US, in the UK that there is an increasing possibility that, let's even say that some governments embrace the Green New Deal, uh, they will have to act uh, unilaterally, uh, including the UK. Um, if that is the case, uh, first of all, what is, um, how well prepared um, is, would, would the government be in terms of uh, sector-specific roadmaps to decarbonize the economy and you know, policies, subsidies, uh, tax breaks, <clears throat> and on the other hand, how uh, how would the UK? Uh, a bit concerned about in what position the UK would be if they act unilaterally. To uh, I'm thinking to prevent carbon leakage, they would have to introduce a border carbon tax, uh, but that that's not ideal when you're trying to negotiate trade deals after Brexit. Okay, so a lot of things going on there. David, why don't you have a go at that? Yeah, I can have a go at some of that. Um, would they be in a position, I think well, your first question was kind of saying like, what, would they be in a position to do this stuff? How ready are they to do something like a Green New Deal in the UK? Um, we know what to do. I mean, we, we, for the last 10, 20 years, the government's been working out what climate change means for different sectors. And we, the question is not, how do we decarbonize the steel industry? It's how do we do it quick? And a large part of the doing it quick is how do you do it in a way that 
doesn't just wipe out the communities that are there. An example, so we're doing some work in the Humber region as part of this broader project where there's loads and loads of genuinely good stuff going on, the local authority there and the businesses and, and loads of people are saying, look, we, want it. we know that we've got loads and loads of heavy industry, we know something's coming, we want to get ahead of that. What they want to see happen is a thing called carbon capture and storage, which some people might know about, some people don't. Basically, the idea is you'll carry on having heavy industry and you will capture the carbon and you'll bung it in old North Sea oil fields and things that are just holes in the ground. Um, may or may not work. Uh, it's not actually being proven at scale. The point being, they have an ask, they have a plan. It doesn't really matter for this conversation whether that's the right plan, but what they are not thinking about at all is why that doesn't work. What do we do about the workers that are left behind? Why, why is the only plan for heavy industry places to continue to sort of suck out the carbon and bury it in a hole in the ground in a way that we haven't yet done at scale and which is very, very expensive to do? Um, so I think it's this social part they haven't really engaged with for all the reasons that Noga set out, which is that's not really the way that we've done government for a while. So I think technologically, it's all there. Economically, it's about marshalling the cash, um, a bit crudely. Socially and in terms of actual places and power, we've got the most centralised um, economy in Europe. I think you know, hard, local local government in this country has very little power to do anything and very little money to do anything, which I suppose is the glass half empty take on what I said earlier. Um, but that could be fixed as well. And one of the things that I think Brexit is going to require is a bit of a look at that. Actually, I think we're going to have to, particularly if Scotland becomes more and more edging towards independence, Wales gets more powers. We're going to have to look at the powers and ability we give to local government to lead this stuff. Um, so, that was sort of rambling answer to your first point. Um, do you want to say anything about the UK unilateral part of it? I have a thought. Yeah. <laughs> I think the challenge that is often, you will often hear people say, what's the point of us doing something? What about China and India? Well, we can't go further and faster than other people because we need to do a border carbon tax and that won't happen. Um, that may or may not be true. What The general response that I give to that is three things, which is firstly, okay, fine, let's do that then. Right? It should be Brexit policy is climate policy, trade policy is climate policy. We shouldn't be doing trade deals with countries that don't ratify the Paris Agreement if we're serious about global responses to climate change. We shouldn't be trading off environmental standards against access to the NHS, against protections for our farmers, but we've kind of got ourselves into that position. But the UK does have a leadership role, particularly this year, so it can decide what sort of leadership, it, what domestic action it wants to take, what challenge it issues to the rest of the world. Um, and we've got an awful lot of stuff that we do that isn't political. The City of London is one of the world's largest financers of fossil fuels still. We have power to affect what happens around the world in lots of ways. So it's not a direct answer to your question, but I do think this, the UK actually not only has a lot more responsibility, but it's a lot more kind of important in the narrative on this stuff. And every single country, every country, will say, what's the point of us doing it if other people don't do it? And that's why you end up with a sum total of all the climate agreements that doesn't add up to the right amount. Someone's got to break that. And I think the best way to look at international climate processes, yes, they're about getting international agreement and international finance transfer, but more than anything else at the moment, they're about increasing domestic ambition and using them as a way to say to your government, go to this thing with a decent plan, and I bet you other people will follow it. Okay, um, the woman at the back with the white top. 
thank you. Um, my name is Maria. I'm an LLM student here at LSE, and I have a question regarding the new uh, proposals from the European Commission on Sustainable Finance based in the action plan on sustainable finance. And I would like to know whether you have a view on them, whether you think they are useful or it's just that it, they need to be seen that they were doing something because of the social pressure. Okay, do you want to just make a comment on that? Or are you? I mean, I think actually, I think it was someone from NEF who did some studies on what they're currently proposing on what the European Green Deal is. And I think that in terms of financially what they're saying, they, they'll put towards it, it's less than, I think, 1% of um, what the European Commission currently has at hand. And so I think what it's not showing us is a move away from traditional politics. And I think, as expected, they are scared of that or they don't want to do it. But it does require more pressure, I think. It's, whilst everything is ultimately always a tiny step forward and that's always great, it's actually very disappointing when you think about the millions of people that have taken to the streets repeatedly across <coughs> Europe. I think in September, one million people across Germany went on strike. That's a huge amount. And to see so little response from the European Commission is, is very, very worrying. And I think that actually is going to take a bit more pressure. It's going to take a bit more anger on our side because less than 1% of the finances that the European Commission have at hand, whilst that's still quite a lot, is nowhere near the kind of climate policy there needs to be. Still, they seem to be, you said, everything needs to be climate policy, and that still seems to be a separation in the way they're talking about this, and there seems to be no actual recognition that the structures that are in place across Europe and actually make up the European Commission themselves are power structures that have contributed to the climate crisis and continue to. And if we're going to actually properly and successfully finance this crisis, we need to not just have a massive devolution of power across Europe, but actually a devolution of finances as well. And that's still not being shown. Can I very quickly add something to that? So um, Noga's right that a colleague of mine has a good answer to that, but it's not me. But um, So I, I don't know specifically about the sustainable finance proposal. What I do know about, I'm actually I'm going to Brussels tomorrow to present a report that I've just written, which is about just illustrating the extent to which this stuff is not being joined up. So the European Commission is simultaneously saying it wants to have a green deal for Europe. It's also saying it's going to copy the UK and have a one-in, one-out rule on regulation. So the UK is the world that we've got one in, three out. You want to bring in a new regulation in the UK, you have to find three that cost the same to get rid of. And the European Commission is now trying to do that as well. And uh, the, one of the central arguments of this is you've got to choose whether you want to be serious about climate policy or not. But the idea that there's some sort of maximum amount of regulation that's impeding growth. And again, you know, the lady's point is very well made. Uh, so I just wanted to give a plug for that report. Um, and I have to get up very early and go and talk about it. So it'd be nice to me. So the name of that report is? It's called Reprotecting Europe, which is a rubbish name. Um, and it's, uh, it's basically, the, the central argument of it is you cannot be in service to economic growth at all costs, with all costs being whenever a business asks you to cut a regulation, you cut it, and serious about climate action at the same time. You have to pick where you come down on. Okay. Um, so yes, over here. Um, hi, my name is Dhruv. Um, I'm an undergraduate here at the LSE. Um, my question is, do you not recognize that the thoroughly statist model, an anti-capitalist model, 
that you are trying to employ for the purposes of this Green New Deal. And the inherent sort of um, the sort of inherent criticisms of pretty much all of the capitalist society that currently exists that are inherent in it. Do you realize that there's, an ele- there's a scorched earth element to that? And you're actually sort of throwing away the most important partners that you need in order to engender a Green New Deal? Because whilst governments may be beholden to citizens who are may not be so willing to change. You have businesses that are more multinational and therefore better placed to create an international response. You have companies that will talk the language of money and of costs. And if you simply speak the language of saying some things are costlier than others and it's cheaper and better to pursue a greener alternative, if you treat them as partners and you circumvent the inaction of governments, also recognizing that it is the same companies who will eventually bankroll the governments into doing what you want... Why don't you focus on the businesses instead, rather than saying, oh, the businesses are doing all the terrible things and we need to fundamentally change the economy? Because what you don't realize is the principal sort of backlash to this Green New Deal comes from the belief that it is socialism through the back door and that it encourages elements of indignity and degrowth for people who actually aspire to something. So do you realize that there's a sort of catastrophic failure of strategy there? Okay, so I mean, I, 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 mean, I think the summary of that is: would would a more uh, capitalist-oriented approach be a more effective approach? I a, think a more capitalist-friendly approach be a more effective approach. I think that's the. I mean, that's the argument that's been around for decades, and that's what climate policy has looked like for decades. That's what climate action has looked like for decades, and we see how climate change is getting worse all the time. So, I think it's not just. <coughs> ideology that has to be looked at and the future that has to be looked at but actual history and for the last few decades we've taken a more capitalist oriented approach and we've said well, governments have said, businesses have said this is the way we want to go about it this is the way we want to approach it and they've absolutely failed and they failed for many reasons but ultimately they failed because they are living in that system that has enabled climate change and I I personally, whilst being no great economist, fail to see how we can free ourselves of climate change by staying in the same system that caused it. And I think that it is a wildly successful and and ingenious plan that was formed 10 years ago, the Green New Deal, and uh, as part of that group, and I think that that's our only hope, almost, in many ways. We've failed through a more capitalist-oriented approach. And I'm reminded of uh, a a small cartoon in which someone says, it's something, someone says in the audience, something like, oh, climate change is a hoax, or what if we did this, what if we did that? And the the lecturer says, well, like, we're living in the worst case, so we can only get better from here. So let's try at least something different. Let's try at least something that we know hasn't caused damage and failure and impossible and immeasurable amounts of suffering. And let's try something for at least the next 10 years, which is pretty much the only time slot left we have to try anything else and to bring back any kind of justice and any kind of respect to communities that have lost so much due to the capitalist system that we're living in. 
And just, just perhaps, David, I mean, there was a strategic element to that as well, which was more like, aren't you fighting on too many fronts at once? Why, why fight on the capitalist front at the same time? It's a, I, I emphatically reject the idea that a planet we can live on is an anti-business agenda. I kind of I see why you like I, I see I, I see what no I, okay but I, I see why you've reacted in the way that you've reacted. The framing, yeah. But firstly, I don't. I, to be very clear, I, I think there are a number of businesses that have been asking government for a long time to do something about this because they see this stuff is bad for their business model because you can't sell stuff on a dead planet. Strategically. Yeah, let's so, from a movement point of view, from a movement point of view, <coughs> Noga's best to answer that. I don't speak for the movement. I'm part of it. What I would say, there is nothing socialist about government deciding that climate change is something we want to point our economies at. I think this is the problem. The, the, the thing that I'm struggling with in, in your challenge, and I do get it, but, but it, it, you are caricaturing it. You are, you are saying it can be perceived as a certain way, and that's a failure of strategy. Obviously, given what's happened with the election, we need to think about strategy. But I do reject the idea that capitalism, that making money for businesses, that all of these things are something that government shouldn't intervene in when it's causing the destruction of life on Earth. Strategically, I think the, the challenge for us is to win the idea that, this, that there is a role for government here. That's essentially the central part of what the Green Deal is about. It's about saying that strategically, let's get the state back, which is not a radical leftist Marxist thing to do at all, in deciding industrial policy, in deciding what we do about decarbonisation. Frankly, the private sector has not been doing the scale of carbon reduction that we need, which those lentil-weaving, yoghurt-eating hippies at the Committee on Climate Change point out. Like, you need a role for government to do this stuff. So I, I accept, I mean, I accept the, that response because I think it's a really important response that we need to think about, but my response to it is to say the problem here is that that's where the debate is at, that it's seen as any kind of restating of the role of government in driving an economy is somehow socialism through the back door, or indeed the front door. Um, Okay, thanks. I mean, just one further point on that. I mean, it's framed as a new deal, which is, after all, a Franklin Delano Roosevelt measure, which is arguably not very anti-capitalist. Um, the woman next to the column. Yeah. Wait for the thing. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to ask what you thought about the impact of having zero interest rates in this country for the last 15 years has had on social inequality in terms of wealth, and the wealth gap and what the US are looking at at the moment in terms of Elizabeth Warren and a billionaire tax and how that could help the UK. Okay, that's um, something to do with climate change and that question, if it can be quick. Um. <laughs> a quick response to mm. that question. Um. No, I mean the tax system and climate change. Tax system and climate change. We're running out of options for monetary policy. I think we kind of know that. If there's a recession around the corner, that's why we wrote this report, actually. Um, 
interest rates are at rock bottom already. I mean, the case has been made, it was at the heart of the original Green New Deal, and it's continued to be so, that this is the, like, this is the best time for government to be investing in this stuff, because it's super cheap and it can stimulate. Um, that hasn't been happening, not because the economics don't add up, but because, you know, partially of the conversation we've just been having, but the political will isn't there. Um, there was a vast amount of quantitative easing was pumped, of uh, printing money was pumped into the system in the last crash, which research that Neff and colleagues have done has shown only increased the amount of fossil fuels in the system, not on purpose, but because there's a lot of fossil fuels is just what you lend to when you're kind of doing this stuff. Yeah. Sorry, for 15 years, and a lot of people have become very wealthy on right. the back of that. So it's partly from social injustice yeah. that we've seen billionaires and a wealth gap that hasn't been in the UK since the 1920s. Um, and that's the, that's the link, I think, with how economics and the social injustice is there and the role of government as well within that. Yeah, so I agree with Does, that. And also, that I, would put house, I put housing into that as well, which is yeah. also a major part of the inequality in the country and a is, major part of the... But is that covered in any way in the new Green Deal? Or? Uh, but in the proposals that we set out for how you pay for this stuff, we have a big chunk about taxing the people who are most responsible in the sort of broad definition of what that means. So um, at the heart of the American proposals, it's explicitly a wealth tax. Um, I don't think, as I said, there's not a very clear written down plan for it in the UK, but certainly it would be the case that some people disproportionately contribute through wealth to environmental damage. And also the flip side of that being, if you've hardly got any money and you, you're scraping by and someone puts a carbon tax on just everything and your, the cost of your food goes up, that's not fair either. So that's one of the reasons. For, so I wouldn't situate it quite in the monetary policy point, but I do think that the who pays for this stuff is not only a central part of the story, but a central part of correcting the broader inequalities that we see. Okay, Naga, do you want to comment just briefly on the significance of the sort of Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders phenomenon, which was also raised? Yeah, I think, um, and obviously David mentioned this in his speech earlier, is that we have seen the repopularisation of the Green New Deal over the pond um, with uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and with Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and something that has led to that has been political movements like the Sunrise Movement and it has been groups like US Climate Strike and Fridays for Future and particularly indigenous groups over in the US um, and Native Americans who have essentially been fighting for rights for their land and for reparations for what they've been through and explaining to many people in America how that is in itself climate justice, that recognising land and water sovereignty for many Native people is climate justice, it is reparations, it is bringing back land. And you said earlier about how nearly all the candidates um, for the democratic race have adopted or to some extent have said the Green New Deal or something in a similar form will be a part of, that, of my platform of what I'm going to present as a democratic candidate. And I think that the importance of that can't be underestimated, but it needs to be replicated over here as well. It needs to become such a part of the mainstream. That's what it looks like uh, for many people over there. It looks like the party of climate deniers against the party who, some of whom are offering a Green New Deal, some of whom are offering over a million green jobs everywhere, some of whom are offering real job security and real equality 
through a kind of economic transformation that neither America nor the UK has seen for a very long time. And I think that the real lessons that have to be taken from that has been the success of those political movements, has been the fact that an entire movement of young people endorsed Bernie Sanders and said, we believe he is the best man to take the Green New Deal forward because of his position on climate policy and because of his position on climate justice and social justice and racial justice. And that is what ties all those things together and that is the, the deeply politicised young people and generation that is behind those candidates and I think that that cannot be ignored and we have to do everything within our power to replicate over, over here to create those kind of movements that can push candidates onto a centre stage and say you are the person we will back as young people across states, across a whole nation we will support you because of your position on climate justice. Okay, now um, I can see there's people wanting to ask questions, but I fear that we've got to the end um, because we've only got 30 seconds left. And I just wanted to um, thank our speakers. I mean, I think we heard some, some very fundamental points today. We heard from David that, um, you know, dealing with this requires a social justice agenda. It needs to be a just transition. And we heard from uh, Noga that only if there's a social movement pushing hard is anything really going to happen? And I hope we can dwell on that and take it away with us. But before we do, can I ask you to thank both of our speakers, David Cameron and David.